opening to the New Testament, Paul's letter to the Romans. The fifth chapter of Romans, reading verses 12 through 21. Romans chapter 5, beginning with verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin was not imputed when, where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift of grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for the judgment which came from the one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The Fundamentals of the Covenant This is perhaps the most important passage in Romans because it outlines how God accomplishes his holy purposes as revealed in the Fundamentals of the Covenant. In these verses, verses 12 through 21 of Romans 5, we have the big picture that makes sense of everything. Let's remember the context of the preceding chapters as we come to this point. In the first chapter of Romans, Paul has addressed the issue of righteousness, the lack of righteousness, the provision of righteousness as the very heart of the gospel. This is the gospel of God concerning his son, who according to the flesh descended from David and is demonstrated to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. The gospel concerns Christ and his work. The focus of the gospel is how we might be right with God. 
In the second and third chapters of Romans, Paul has looked at the human race, Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor, religious and irreligious, moral and immoral. The evidence demands the verdict that is given in the scripture that the whole world is condemned before God. There is none righteous, no, not one. In the fourth chapter of Romans, having described our condemnation, Paul next proclaims God's provision, how righteousness is secured by Jesus Christ in his life, death, and resurrection. The resurrection is proof of his atoning sacrifice on the cross. Paul explains how this work of Christ applies to us, not as a wage that we earn, but as a free gift received through faith. When we come to the fifth chapter, the first 11 verses remind us of the wonderful blessings of justification. We have peace in the past and grace in the present and expect glory in the future. The blessings of justification are further revealed against the challenges of life, which include suffering and sinfulness and security. So how is the gospel possible? We come to the second half of Romans, verses 12 through 21, and here Paul surveys the whole of human history in order to demonstrate to us the universal impact of the gospel of Jesus Christ Paul uses language and concepts familiar to his readers. Here he explains what it means to be in Christ. By nature, all of us are in Adam. The basic biblical revelation is that either you are in Adam or you are in Christ. The phrase at the focus of this passage is in verse 19, by one man. That's the heart of the fundamentals of the covenant, by one man. To highlight the dynamics of the covenant, we emphasize three concepts. Representation, imputation, and confirmation. Classic illustration of representation, imputation, and confirmation is the Old Testament contest between David and Goliath, recorded in 1 Samuel 17. A huge Philistine army equipped with chariots, the nuclear weapons of that day, was represented by Goliath, a giant over nine feet tall. When David, representing the Israelites, stoned and slew Goliath, the victory of David was imputed to the Israelites, the defeat of Goliath was imputed to the Philistines, the result was confirmed with the Philistines fleeing and the Israelites chasing them and plundering their tents. At the moment that David killed Goliath, the Philistine casualty count was one soldier. However, he was their champion, their representative. His defeat was imputed to his army with a violent confirmation. What are the fundamentals of the covenant? The first fundamental is representation, particularly looking at verses 12 through 14. 
Covenant theology correctly understands that God does not deal directly with people, but always through a representative. He is the covenant head who acts on behalf of his people. Here's an illustration from sporting events. The way we participate and benefit from sporting events. When your team wins, you say, we won! When your team loses, you say, we lost. If you enjoy following a team, whether they are high school or college, professional or Olympic, cheering for your team makes you a fan. When your team wins, you provide the encouragement while the actual players excelled in the athletic event. While you did not hit the deciding home run or catch the winning pass in the end zone or shoot the game-winning three-point shot, you rejoice in the successful results as if you had been one of the victorious players. When the team wins, you win. Another illustration of representation is our government. We have a covenantal or representative arrangement in government. Suppose the American ambassador to France negotiates a mutual defense treaty and then the U.S. Senate ratifies the treaty. If France is attacked, then you will defend France by your men and money, even though you didn't sign the treaty and didn't ratify it in the Senate. When the ambassador, as your federal head, signs the treaty, then you signed it. You are under the authority of the ambassador, and he acts on your behalf. He is your federal representative. Representation is the basis on which we baptize children of believers. God deals with children through their parents. The father is the covenant head. He is the representative of his family. Representation is the basis on which we should organize our congregational meetings. The head of the household represents the family. Representation is the basis of the presbytery meetings. The teaching and ruling elders represent the congregation at the presbytery meetings. God deals with us through representatives. Fundamentally, there are only two, Adam and Jesus Christ. All human beings who have ever lived have either Adam as their leader or Jesus as their leader. All people are either in Adam or they are in Christ. If they are in Adam, God deals with them through Adam. If they are in Christ, God deals with them through Christ. God is a covenant God, and he deals with us through these two covenant heads. He deals with us by means of our representative. The Puritan theologian Thomas Goodwin gives us a, another illustration. He wrote, Paul speaks of Adam and Christ as if there had never been any more men in the world except these two. But why? Because these two between them had all the rest of the sons of men hanging at their girdle. In Puritan times, a girdle was a leather belt. 
Think of two great giants with wide leather belts around their waist. On the belts are millions of little hooks. Hanging from each hook is a person. Every person is attached to Adam's belt or to Christ's belt. There is no other position. There is no other possibility. Who you are fundamentally is either in Adam or in Christ. Everything else is subordinate to your connection to your representative. Your gender, your nationality, your personality, your spirituality, everything is dependent on whether you are attached to Adam's belt or to Christ's belt. The whole force of this analogy is based on the real existence of Adam as a single historic individual. You cannot accept the theory of evolution and make it compatible with Paul's argument. There is no correspondence between Jesus, who was a real individual, and Adam, who was not a real individual. Paul's argument depends on Adam being the first created human being. So the first subject in this passage is representation. We can only understand our sin problem by realizing that we were born in Adam. We can only understand by realizing that we are attached to Adam's belt. The issue of sin is not merely our personal transgressions and debt. It is not chiefly our failures and mistakes. It is more fundamentally that we are in Adam. God deals with us through Adam. Likewise, we can only understand our salvation by realizing that God has disconnected us from Adam and connected us to Christ. Who we are is no longer in Adam, but now we are in Christ. We can only rejoice in our salvation by realizing that a change of represent representatives has happened to us. It is a fundamental change, an irreversible change in our standing before God. The first fundamental of the covenant is representation. The second fundamental is imputation, drawing particularly from verses 15 through 17. Imputation is a theological word. We don't use it often. The Oxford Dictionary defines it as to ascribe something to some to a person by virtue of a similar quality in another. I'll give you an example. If you said, that boy is probably lazy. His father is the laziest man I know. You are imputing laziness to the boy, not because you have observed him to be lazy, but because his father is lazy. You are taking the vice of the father and you are imputing it to his son. Another example. If you said, that girl is surely thoughtful because her mother is very kind. You are imputing the kindness of the mother to the daughter. In this passage, everything that Adam was is counted as the character of his people. Everything that Adam did is credited to the action of his people. Similarly, everything that Jesus was is counted as ours 
Everything that Jesus did is credited to us. Adam, as our federal head, was a type of another one who was to come. All along, God was setting it up so that we would be justified in Christ. There would be another one by whose success or failure we would either stand or fall. We would do so by imputation. It is by the imputation of Adam's demerits and condemnation that we are sinners, and it is by the imputation of Christ's merit and righteousness that we are justified. The guilt or innocent of the covenant head is imputed to those who belong to him. The obedience of Jesus is imputed to us. It is not ours actually, but it is reckoned to us. It is credited to us. It is counted as ours. Imputation means that all that is true of the covenant head, the representative, is imputed to his people. Paul fills out this argument. All people are involved in sin and death. That is obvious. Further, Paul spends three chapters proving this. The issue of sin is around us. All people sin. All people die. Why do they die? It's because all have sinned. But there is a deeper reason. We all sin and we all die because of our covenant head, our representative. It is because of Adam. Paul makes this point no fewer than six times in this passage. In verse 12, he writes, As through one man's sin entered the world, verse 15, by one man's offense many died, verse 16, judgment which came from one offense, verse 17, by one man's offense death reigned through the one, verse 18, by one man's offense judgment came to all men, verse 19, by one man's disobedience many were made sinners. Paul emphasizes the reality of what happened by one man. When Adam, the giant, fell into sin, we fell into sin with him because we are connected to him. We fell because he fell. It is not a coincidence or a fluke that every person has sinned. It is because we are in an organic relationship with Adam. We are in him. Westminster Shorter Catechism 16 states simply that we sinned in him and fell with him in his first transgression. We sinned in his first transgression. We fell in his first transgression. His sin is counted as ours. Paul gives evidence of this truth back in verses 13 and 14. The argument is simple. God gave Adam a clear and definite command God spoke to Adam and warned that if he broke his commandment, he would die. Centuries later, God came to Moses. God spoke to Moses. God gave Moses clear and definite commandments. God said, if you break these commandments, you will die. We understand why Adam died. God spoke to him. We understand why Moses died. God spoke to him. But in between Adam and Moses, thousands and thousands of people died. God had not spoken to them directly. God had not given a command to them directly. 
yet they all died. Why did they die? The only explanation is that they shared the penalty of Adam's disobedience. And so Paul writes in verse 14, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam. The reason that sin and death are universal in the world is because we are in Adam. Next, Paul turns to the subject of salvation. Here's one of the most brilliant pieces of reasoning. Paul writes with beauty, symmetry, and exactness, there is salvation, including forgiveness, eternal life in heaven. And how will that come? How do we get salvation? Paul's opponents have insisted that it would come by our works. If we keep God's law, if we obey him, if we do the best we can, we will be saved. That's what people think today. Natural man thinks that if you are good enough, or if you suffer enough, or if you believe enough, you will go to heaven. The idea is that God examines each person individually. If you do well enough, you will pass. If you don't do well enough, you will fail. On the day of judgment, we get our exam results. Some may pass and some may fail. It's entirely up to you. That is the common deception. Paul refutes this deception. How are we lost? We are lost by, are we lost by individual failures? No. We were lost because of one man. Because of one man, we were lost. How will we be saved? We will be saved exactly the same way we were lost by one man. We were lost because of one man. We are saved because of one man. We were lost because of what Adam did. We are saved because of what Jesus did. We are lost or saved through our representative. The deeds of our representative are imputed to those who belong to him. Paul says in verse 14 that Adam was a type of him who was to come. This rules out completely any idea of salvation by our works or by our good deeds. That contradicts the whole pattern of God's covenant relationship. Do you see the symmetry? In Adam, we disobeyed. In Adam, we sinned. In Adam, we fell. In Adam, we are judged. In Adam, we die. And so, in Christ, we obeyed. In Christ, we lived perfect lives. In Christ, we paid for the sins on the cross. In Christ, we were raised from the dead. In Christ, we are seated in heaven. In Christ, we live forever. All that he is, is ours. All that he suffered, is ours. All that he did, is counted as ours. Paul expresses this truth in other words. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22, he writes, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. John Henry Newman has a little poem. He writes, All loving wisdom of our God, when all was sin and shame, a second Adam to the fight and to the rescue came.
The first two fundamental concepts of covenant theology are representation and imputation. The third fundamental is confirmation. Paul is a pastor who wants the Romans believers to grasp the gospel. He's not writing as an abstract theologian. He's not trying to show how well he can explain covenant theology. The first 11 verses of chapter 5, he's concerned about peace with God, assurance of the love of God, and rejoicing in God. Now he wants to establish the conviction. He wants to come to the confirmation that if you are in Christ, your salvation is certain, and that is final. Look at verses 18 and 19. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous acts, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. These verses may be the very heart of the whole of the epistle. Paul is showing us that in Christ we are part of a new humanity. He makes this point by comparison. He reminds us of the utter inevitability that results from being in Adam. What is the great and universal fact of being connected to Adam by ordinary generation? Death. Everybody is going to die. What is the what is there any possibility of escaping physical death? No, there is not. <coughs> we are born in Adam. It is certain that we will die. What does this mean for those who are in Christ? The same absolute certainty applies. What is the great universal fact of being connected to Christ by spiritual regeneration? Life. Is there any possibility of missing eternal life? No, because we are now in Christ. It is certain that we will live. Salvation is far bigger than many Christians understand. Salvation is more than the forgiveness of sins. Salvation is a radical new change of position before God. It is a new status and standing with God. It is a total transformation of who you are and how God deals with you. We have been disconnected from Adam and have been connected to Christ. We have a new covenant representative. Previously, all of God's dealings with us were through Adam. Now all of God's dealings with us are through Jesus. As sin came into the world, and thus death spread to all men who were united to the one man, Adam, even so righteousness came into the world and spread to all who were united to the one man, Jesus. John Owen wrote, Our great problem is not lack of effort, but unacquaintedness with our privileges. You are in Christ. People ask, How do I know I will persevere? When God saves you, he puts you into Christ. Calvin said that we may not look for certainty of our salvation anywhere else than in the covenant. 
You can look at death and see the certainty of life. Go to any cemetery and every gravestone proves that you must share the experience of your old covenant representative. There is no escape. Hebrews 9.27 writes, it is, appointed for men, it is appointed for men to die. You must ex- share the experience of your old covenant head. But now for those who are united to Christ, you have a new covenant head. As sure as your body will die, so sure that your body and soul will live forever because you are in Jesus. Your new covenant relationship. You must share the experience of your covenant head. As certainly as death came through Adam, so certainly does life come through Jesus. This passage reminds us of the enormous chasm between the believer and the unbeliever. It is not a little difference. It is a vast difference. It is not that the believer is a little more religious than the unbeliever, or has made a commitment that the unbeliever has not The difference is that the unbeliever is in Adam and the believer is in Christ. If you have not surrendered to Jesus Christ, if you have not committed to him, you are still in Adam. There is no possibility that you will ever please God by doing anything in your life. You are in Adam. You can try your best, but it doesn't matter. You can keep the commandments, but it doesn't matter. You can try to please God, but that doesn't matter. You are in Adam. As long as you are connected to Adam, there is absolutely nothing you can do to save yourself to improve your situation. The only change that is possible for you is to be disconnected from Adam and connected to Jesus. If you have been loosed from Adam and united to Jesus, it is absolutely certain, it is guaranteed that your representative credits you with perfect righteousness and eternal life. Nothing will ever change that status. You may stumble, but because you are connected to Jesus, you cannot fall away. Nothing that happens to you will ever change your union with Christ. It is God's decision, not yours, that made Jesus your covenant representative. The transfer from Adam to Jesus is irreversible. It cannot be undone. Do you think that God would change his mind? Will he realize one day that you are not worth it? Will God ever disconnect you from Jesus and reconnect you to Adam? That is utterly, eternally impossible because of the death of the Son of God. His earthly life made full satisfaction for our righteousness, and his accursed death made full payment for all of our infractions. His resurrection is the certainty of complete salvation for those who are united to Christ. You have passed from death to life. Our Lord Jesus said, John 5, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes on him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Everyone in Christ is equally secure. The weakest believer, the frailest Christian, 
the inconsistent disciple, the least gifted follower, is as secure as the greatest saint because nothing has to do with us. Certainty has everything to do with Jesus Christ. There are two representatives. What each one does is imputed to those who belong to them. Adam's sin made death certain for those who are united to him. Jesus' death made life certain for those who are united to him. When you are lifted out of Adam and placed into Jesus, everything that is true of Jesus is credited to you. And so Paul concludes this paragraph by writing, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through the righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The grand and sovereign plan of God, the big picture that makes sense of everything else, is expressed in a poem by Edmund Clowney. Vast the immensity mirror of majesty Galaxy spread in a curtain of light. Lord, your eternity rises in mystery. There where no eye can see, infinite height. Sounds your creative word, forming both star and bird, shaping the cosmos to win your delight. Order from chaos springs, form what your wisdom brings guiding created things, infinite might. Who can your wisdom scan? Who comprehend your plan? How can the mind of man your truth embrace? Here does your word disclose more than your power shows, love that to Calvary goes, infinite grace. Triune your majesty, triune your love to me, fixed from eternity in heaven above. Father, what mystery in your infinity you gave your son for me, infinite love. Who is your representative? What is imputed to you? Do you realize the confirmation of your status before God? Are you still in Adam and so in sin and condemnation? Or are you now in Christ and so in peace and righteousness? God's design of representation, imputation, and confirmation testify to you that only if you are in Christ are you reconciled with God, righteous by God, and reassured before God. These are the fundamentals of the covenant. Bow in prayer. Our gracious God, as we pour over the scriptures and seek to comprehend the depths of what Paul is expressing, the wonder of what you have accomplished in setting forth the covenant of redemption comes before us with renewed awe. And it puts all of our efforts or all of our sufferings or all of our earnestness to decide that we might receive by faith the
the gift of righteousness in Jesus Christ. How we long that you would confirm to us so that we would have no doubts or misunderstanding about the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we deal with other people, their hardness of heart or their stubbornness is not only a result of their own infractions, but because they are still united to Adam. And so we praise you that you have ordained a covenant head who has accomplished all righteousness for us and has suffered all the penalty on the behalf of your people and therefore now grants and secures to us life that never ends in the physical deaths but continues on in the promise of a resurrected body as well as a soul residing in paradise. We thank you for your mercies, for the wonders of revealing the greatness of what our Savior Jesus Christ has accomplished. And we ask that you grant to us an earnest and sincere faith to rest and trust in him. We plead for your mercies in Jesus' name. Amen.